Welcome to Jedi Master's Degree. I'm Biggs. Today we are going to start off on our adventure doing A New Hope Act 1. We always start out with the production of whatever movie we're doing. It's going to be a little bit longer than it will be in other movies for this one because it's setting up a world and so there's just more to say. It'll be a lot quicker in future movies. The second thing I got to say is I absolutely want people to live with these movies as they were when they came out. And so when I talk about this, I will not be talking about the special edition. I have a copy of the old Star Wars when it was still called Star Wars. We will talk about the changes with the special editions in the third season, but right now we're going to treat it as it was when it came out. If you want to follow along, I don't know the legality of it, but I have heard that Army's despecialized edition, they put all these movies out in HD, and I think the idea is you buy the movie and then you can go ahead and download this. It's questionable whether it's legal or not, but I want to do it this way because I would rather talk about things as audiences saw it in 1977, not as it was changed in the 90s and again in the 2000s and again in the 2010s. So the first thing you should know is that George Lucas had a group of friends that all wound up being very famous directors. We're talking about Francis Ford Coppola, who did the Godfather movies. We're talking about Martin Scorsese, who did Taxi Driver and most recently The Irishman. We're talking about Steven Spielberg, who did Your Entire Childhood. We're talking about Brian De Palma, who's famous for Carrie and Scarface. Now, this group of directors would watch each other's movies and help each other out with stuff. And this is just amazing in itself because you're talking about the directors who changed film more than any other directors. I mean, like them as a group, it's insane how much they changed Hollywood. And so the fact that they were all together and working on each other's stuff is pretty significant and don't think that this doesn't apply to Star Wars 2 because it absolutely does and we'll circle back to that in a little bit but before that George Lucas made this short when he was in college called THX 1138 and his teacher Irvin Kirshner who would wind up directing Empire Strikes Back yeah weird but true thought it was really promising he'd given him an assignment I believe to make a five minute short and George Lucas went and made an 11 minute short and just blew everybody's doors off with this short. Eventually, he goes to try and make it into a feature-length movie. Doesn't really become too successful, but then on a dare from Francis Ford Coppola, Lucas goes out and he makes American Graffiti because Coppola says, you couldn't make a comedy. So Lucas is like, yeah, I can. And he makes American Graffiti. George Lucas starts working on a screenplay for Star Wars. Starts noticing that his screenplay is resembling the things he learned from Joseph Campbell, who is this teacher who talked about mythology. And at a certain point, he has Joseph Campbell kind of look over it and tell him if it's meeting the structure or not. By 1973, George Lucas finishes a treatment for Star Wars. He'd had it floating around in his head at least since 1971. He maintains it was even longer. It's kind of hard to tell with George Lucas, and you'll find this out in the future. I don't know if he misremembers things or if he remembers things in a way where he gets more credit. It's hard to say. He's kind of controversial in those ways, but regardless, he had had the idea before, and he finishes his treatment in 1973. It's about 11 pages long. He takes it to Universal. He takes it to United Artists. He takes it to Disney, and they all pass. And then this guy named Alan Ladd, who worked for 20th Century Fox, brings him in. He doesn't understand anything about Star Wars, but he does think that George Lucas is very talented, so he invests in him based off of the talent that he sees. Finally, Luke 
Lucas finishes the screenplay. He goes through a couple of revisions. At first, Luke's name is Luke Starkiller. Of course, this is alluded to in novels and a part seven. (laughs) But before we get there, he acts as that name. He eventually goes to Skywalker. Everybody tells him the screenplay is entirely too long. He cleaves the screenplay into thirds, and then he hires Ralph McQuarrie to make these paintings. Often with these films, they'll make storyboards. They'll draw certain scenes so that the camera can kind of have a guide of what to work on for the idea. It's not quite that, but he just wanted the studio to understand what he was trying to do because visually there was never anything like Star Wars before. And so this was very key into getting this movie greenlit. He had to make sure that they understood what he was going for. And so this is the best way to accomplish it. This part is very key. American Graffiti, which he has been making while he's working on the screenplay, becomes this big hit. And so because it's a hit, George Lucas comes back up to Alan Ladd and he renegotiates his contract. But instead of more money, he wants the rights to make sequels because, like I said, he's got this giant screenplay he worked off of. And he wants some merchandising. Now, merchandising was not worth a lot back in those days. You would maybe get a lunchbox, but it's not like they sold a ton of them. They didn't do a whole lot with merchandising back then. And so, of course, they were like, yeah, that's all you want? Sure. You know? (laughs) (laughs) It's a deal that'll never be made again now. But it was made at the time because they were like, yeah, he's trading away all this stuff that's not going to mean anything. There's not very many sequels at this point. It's not like this was something that you could count on. So he begins making Star Wars. One of the first things George Lucas does is he starts up Industrial Light and Magic so that they can make the special effects for the movies. He had never seen anything in the movies that could quite do what he wanted to do. So that is why he started ILM. He starts casting. George Lucas wanted some fresh faces. He didn't want established actors. He wanted the audience to be lost in this is this person. This is this person. This is that person. He didn't want them to be like, oh, look, Steve McQueen. Harrison Ford, he already had an American graffiti, but he figured even though Harrison Ford had a small part, Harrison Ford had already been seen in the movie, so he wanted somebody brand new. However, Harrison Ford was working as a carpenter and as a favor to George Lucas, he was reading people through the scripts. He would be their partners. He starts auditioning groups, and at a certain point, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher are together, and they're obviously perfect for it. I mean, Mark Hamill really had this kind of naivete quality to him, but he was able to read all of this crazy dialogue and make it sound real. Carrie Fisher was supposed to have a bit of an arrogance to her, a bit of a royal feel to her, and this was perfect because her parents were famous. Her mother was Debbie Reynolds, who was super famous, and Eddie Fisher was her father. And they had this giant romance and they wound up splitting up when Carrie Fisher was a very small child. And so... When she told all of her friends that she got a part for Star Wars, one of her friends quipped, it sounds like it's a movie about your parents. Harrison Ford was always reading with them, and so eventually they brought him in to be Han Solo. Lucas relents. This is a common motif with these early movies, is George Lucas has an idea, he's proven wrong over and over again, he relents, and it winds up working great. So Lucas always has the big ideas, he just sometimes has a problem with admitting when he's right. Let's watch it. You're getting a little salty about George Lucas. Dude, do you really think I'm going to rip apart A New Hope? It's one of my all-time favorite movies. I don't know what kind of crazy stuff you're into. I just know my job. 
So we got our principal cast in place. Because they have all these fresh faces, Fox really wants somebody to come in who's recognizable. So they bring in Alec Guinness. I think most recently he had been in The Bridge Over the River Kwai. And he wanted to play a wizard, so he came on. He would regret this later. <laughs> Alec Guinness was maybe the one member of the cast who, after being in it, was just like, I don't want to be in any more Star Wars movies ever. But, of course, he winds up being in two more. They also cast Peter Cushing, who is very famous for being being in the Hammer films at that point, which were these ultra gory horror films for the day. Probably doesn't hold a candle to a lot of stuff nowadays, but definitely at the time, it was very gory. They bring in Anthony Daniels because he's really good at miming and he's super skinny, so they pop him into the C-3PO suit, and eventually they wind up using his voice too because he's just doing it perfect, and George Lucas can't find anybody better to go over the top of it. And then they try to get kids to do R2-D2, because they would fit inside the droid, but kids just weren't strong enough to be able to make it move. So eventually they bring in a little person named Kenny Baker, who winds up playing all kinds of little monsters and creatures in movies. And they cast David Prowse to play the body of Darth Vader. One of the reasons they casted him was he lied up and down that he was able to fence, and he was not able to fence. And so this just irritated George Lucas to no end, which caused a lot of problems between him and David Prowse in the future and I'm sure we'll talk about all of that stuff but we'll leave that to the future for now and of course they bring in James Earl Jones to do his voice because they wanted a very bassy voice that sounded dominating to go over top of it so the shooting starts in Tunisia so the remote controls for the droids R2-D2 and R5 don't seem to work because something about the radio signals bouncing off the sand and so they wind up having to figure out stuff along the way. One of the ways they do it is tie ropes around the droids and just under where the camera's watching and then they're pulling them with ropes. Things like that. Bad weather starts in on day one and it immediately knocks them off schedule. They're about two weeks behind by the time they finish shooting in Tunisia, which has like 107 degree weather on the regular, so it's pretty miserable. They wind up moving to Elstree Studios. Gilbert Taylor, the cinematographer for the beginning of Star Wars, just constantly clashes with George Lucas. And eventually they have this argument about the placement of a light. And so Lucas winds up firing him. They filmed the Moss Eisley Cantina, which apparently was amazing on the script and just did not work when they filmed the scene. And so they wound up bringing in Rick Baker later when they did reshoots and they completely reshot the scene. And so Rick Baker was instructed just to bring anything that he could that he had laying around. This is why in the original version, you see a wolf man and you see a devil and you see all these things because he's just using any makeup combinations that he can to liven up stuff and bring a lot of faces around the bar. Eventually, the board of directors tried to shut down the principal production of Star Wars after it's two weeks over. Alan Ladd tells George Lucas, you need to get it finished within a week because when I go to meet with him again, I will get fired if this is still going. George Lucas finally wraps up everything. He winds up firing his editor because his editor is trying to use the actors to dictate the pace and it's just not working. There are scenes that because of the special effects don't quite match up. And so he brings in three more editors to work on it because he's doing it himself. And he's basically having panic attacks at this point. He brings in Paul Hirsch, Richard Chu, and his wife, Marsha, who's working with 
Martin Scorsese on New York, New York. Eventually, they start to piece things together and find the stuff that actually works within it. And then they start dictating pace based off of the scenes that they have that actually work with the special effects. So then as if all of this isn't enough, ILM has already spent half their budget a year in. They're pioneering the digital motion control photography and they built this model, but they only had four shots. None of them are usable. So George Lucas starts coming in twice a week. He brings them footage of World War II dogfights, which they then start to use to ape with models. And this is actually something that's done quite a bit with computers now, is they'll take a scene from something else and then they'll literally have that there and digitally paint over the things. But of course, they didn't have computers like they have nowadays, so they had to do all this by hand. But it at least gave them something to work off of. When you think about the way that the TIE fighters move into the frame or the way that X-Wing barrel roll based off of airplane fights in World War II. Meanwhile, as all this chaos is going, Ben Burt starts making the sound design and quite frankly, I think, does the best job of sound design that has ever been done in the history of movies. Everybody, whether you're familiar with Star Wars or not, you hear certain sounds and you immediately think of Star Wars. So he does stuff like with Chewbacca, Chewbacca obviously growls, and so he uses sounds of lions and tigers and bears and walruses. He just mixes them together to make this library of noises for him. He makes the sound of blasters. He takes these cables that were on a power line at the very end that were kind of anchoring them, and he would take hammers and hit them, and then he would record that. That would make the blaster noise. R2-D2 he made by kind of making baby talk sounds and then taking synthesizers and doubling over the sounds that he would make. Darth Vader breathing. He took a microphone and put it inside a scuba regulator and then lightsabers he took an old movie projector motor and then a shieldless microphone that would pick up interference from a tv and mix those two sounds so he's got all this iconic stuff how it is that he can come up with this stuff i have no idea i engineer sound sometimes i have a really difficult time i actually have a really easy time engineering sounds not to this level though producer fed i mean there's a lot of skill that's tied in with this Jeez! See, perfect screaming noise. You know, this is not what you were paid for in a blind trust. Oh, I know. I do this for free. Plus, I'm creating a library of sounds. You never know when it'll come in handy. Well, once again, we got a scorched mark in the studio. I don't know what we're going to do about this. I cannot afford to be replacing this all the time. It's really not a big deal. We don't have to make a big deal out of this. It kind of is a big deal. I don't have a lot of money. It all went into the blind trust for you. Hey. Yep, I gotcha. Go get me some duct tape. Seriously, that's not going to repair anything. No, it'll make it look all nice. Just put a little bit of paint over it. It's not a big deal. You won't even know I'm here. It won't even pick up on the mic. But I'm sitting here recording something. I can't do that with fumes. Oh, man. You're so precious. All right, I'll wait till you're done. Thanks, I guess. All right, so where was I? After they get all of this stuff made, they get a rough cut of the film. Some of the special effects aren't quite done yet. And then George Lucas shows it to all his director friends, and they hate, hate the movie, except for Steven Spielberg, I think because he's the most imaginative of them and could kind of picture what was going on without the special effects. He really liked the story. Brian De Palma said it was too confusing, and so he took the opening crawl that George Lucas had, and he helped him edit it so that it was a little more to the point. 
point because apparently it was very text heavy when he originally did it. Meanwhile, the movie's being screened at Fox and for the first time, George Lucas actually gets some praise from the board of directors. They're absolutely knocked out with what he's accomplished. But the movie is not quite done yet. They finally get the effects in place and George Lucas winds up hiring John Williams after Steven Spielberg suggests him because he had scored Jaws and did a fantastic job, won an Oscar for it. And this is kind of risky because at that time, disco is really popular. You do have classic rock going on then. I'm sure they didn't call it classic rock, but you have rock and roll going on back then. Usually your soundtrack used to sell some records. So having a symphonic score is risky because you're basically taking out a profit margin away from them by having a symphonic score. However, nobody realizes what an icon John Williams will be. And so he creates the most incredible soundtrack probably ever committed to vinyl. So that does it for production. Let's talk about the actual movie. So of course, you start out with that 20th century logo and you get the Lucasfilm limited production coming up. And then a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away with your ellipses that's got four dots for some reason. And then boom, Star Wars, that music just hits you. It's just a great way to start out a movie. It's one of the reasons why this movie just has stood the test of time because it just immediately screams epic at you. So the crawl says it is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her spaceship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. And of course, at this point, you see the rebel ship come racing across the screen, which is then chased down by the Star Destroyer, which starts as a tip and just keeps going. Going and going and going and going. It's so incredible. I really envy people in the 70s for seeing this for the first time. I can't imagine what it must have been like. Then you've got C-3PO and R2-D2 running down a corridor in the ship with another protocol droid that looks exactly like C-3PO. And of course, you got all the rebels with their crazy gray helmets that sort of stick out. And you got C-3PO just whining, we're doomed, immediately setting up his character, how whiny and just put upon he will be. He lets you know that they're never going to get to the princess on time. And then the ship winds up being docked inside the Star Destroyer. You get that really close up look of the one rebel who just seems terrified at the whole thing. They all take aim and right through the door, you've got the stormtroopers blasting. Maybe the first time that they can actually hit targets. This is definitely the last movie they'll be able to hit any kind of targets. And then coming at the very end, you have, of course, the malevolent presence of the best villain ever committed to film, Darth Vader. Darth Vader is pretty interesting for a lot of reasons. First off, he just straight up looks cool. There's just something about the shape of that helmet, the dark lenses that are covering his eyes, how tall and imposing he is, that red lightsaber, the control panel that's on him where it makes him seem like he could be a robot, he could be a person. But also, he's not the guy in charge, and he's not the guy in charge of any of these movies, which is kind of crazy. It makes sense because in later movies, he's going to need to have ambition to move up in the ranks, which is why it's smart to set him where it's at. But he's got this constant power struggle with Grand Moff Tarkin 
I mean, Vader is like your third or fourth in control. It's just really interesting that that's the guy you pick to be your main villain of the story. Even though he cuts an imposing figure, you would think he would be the ruler of everything. That's typically how this stuff works. It's quite interesting. Then the film cuts over to C-3PO rushing through a side entrance and you hear Princess Leia's voice talking to R2-D2 trying to figure out where he's at, recording the end of a message that we'll see later. C-3PO, of course, is just panicking that they'll wind up being sent to the spice mines of Kessel, which you'll find out later. That's drugs. We see rebels being let out by stormtroopers. There's droids everywhere. They're really setting up the aesthetic of this movie. They're really showing you the stark black of Darth Vader against all these white helmets. You know that this guy stands above everything else. He stands out. He's so intimidating. And of course, he's strangling this guy with his hands this time. And he's demanding the transmissions. And the guy doesn't talk. Is it courage? Or is it the fact that he's being strangled to death? Hard to say. But he does tell him at first they're on a diplomatic mission, which of course Darth Vader doesn't buy. He gets flung across the room and then Darth Vader tells him to tear everything apart. Find the passengers that have the plans. So you see the stormtroopers coming through. Princess Leia is ready with her gun and she just immediately opens fire. She takes down one of them and then a stormtrooper stuns her, which is kind of interesting that they have the stun setting that it's this big circle. I never quite understood it, but it's definitely something that they They've kept in the Star Wars universe. You've got R2-D2 and C-3PO getting into a escape pod. And R2-D2's telling him that they've got a secret mission. It just doesn't seem like a great idea to let everybody know out in the open. Hey, by the way, we're on a secret mission. But whatever. There's a couple of officers from the Star Destroyer who see that this escape pod is going out. And they're like, oh, yeah. Must have just uh, must have just malfunctioned. There's no life forms. It's an amazing oversight for a world that has droids everywhere to just be like, oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I I love it, but that is nuts. And that guy probably off screen gets strangled by Darth Vader. So then you have Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia coming up to Darth Vader and telling him only you would be so bold. He knows that they've got the plans transmitted onto the ship. She's maintaining that they're on a diplomatic meeting. And he's not buying it. He hauls her off to be tortured. Meanwhile, you've got an officer who's talking pretty boldly to Vader, just telling him he's making mistakes. And Vader is just telling him, nope, she's a rebel. I don't care what you said. She's a rebel. And then he just keeps walking down. It's funny because by Empire Strikes Back, I don't think he puts up with that. I think he just strangles the dude. So the guy tells Darth Vader that the escape pod jettisoned. And so Darth Vader quickly surmises that the escape pod had the plans. And so it was launched out to Tatooine. So now we've got R2-D2 and C-3PO wandering across a desert. C-3PO is just being insufferable. Just going on and on about how his joints hurt about how they're going to break down, just being so whiny, talking about how there's nothing going on anywhere. R2-D2 just keeps forging ahead, trying to accomplish his mission. C-3PO decides, I'm not going to go that way because it's too rocky that way. You know, the dude who doesn't have wheels is just like, yeah, no, I'm not going that way. It's amazing. It's amazing that they just like hand you off to these two robots 
for a good 10, 15 minutes of the movie. Yep, one of them's super whiny, and then they split up, and here's where you are. It's a really unusual beginning for a movie. It's not something that you see in movies even nowadays that much. Usually, you're just going action, action, action. They actually take this breath to kind of give you the personality of some robots. This is one of the reasons why this movie was so groundbreaking. They were truly doing things in the story and up on the screen that nobody had ever really tried before. So C-3PO, of course, keeps going across the dunes. And in an uncharacteristic moment, seems very happy that he's going to be saved by a transport. And we get the wipe. And then we follow R2-D2 going down a dark valley. And of course, the Jawas are following him. And the Jawas are great. They're basically little people or kids that are wearing these little red eyes. But it's a really cool effect because within the hood, you can't really see what's going on behind there. So it really does create this little creature. And then you get the little voices. And then one of them seems to fire off some sort of gun, maybe an EMP to short him out. And R2, unfortunately, falls over. They collect him up, they put him in the transport, where he is reunited with C-3PO. So another thing that they absolutely get right at the beginning of this movie is within this transport, you just see these droids everywhere. Some of them are in pieces, some of them are moving around a little bit, but you get the feeling that there's something going on within this barge. And it's just like the level of world building that they commit to is really incredible. They cut to a picture of the open desert with the escape pod, and the stormtroopers notice the tracks for the droids. We cut back to the transport, and R2-D2 and C-3PO are complaining to each other. The Jawas take the droids out, of course, to be sold, and you've got Uncle Owen and Luke show up in the frame, and Uncle Owen's looking at C-3PO and deciding that he doesn't need a protocol droid, but then the droid lets him know that he can actually communicate with vaporators. So Owen immediately tells C-3PO to shut up because he's the audience surrogate at this point. <laughs> they also decide to take R5 with them, which is this little red droid. And of course, Red gets about, I'd say, five feet out before the head winds up having smoke billow out of it and stops. And of course, that's because he's got a bad motivator. <laughs> Whatever that means. He just doesn't have the motivation to move on. Uh, R2-D2 is going back and forth looking all joyous. I just picture Kenny Baker shuffling back and forth with his feet. And then finally, they grab R2-D2, they grab C-3PO, and they take them back to their domicile. Now, to this point, the droids have looked very dirty, and you see them cleaning off C-3PO, and you see Luke working on R2-D2 with a wrench trying to, to free the restraining bolt because there's some message that comes through that's obviously Princess Leia for just a second. And of course, R2 shuts off the message, and so Luke doesn't get the rest of it. What's really interesting about this scene, you're seeing him have to clean up this droid. This is another thing that makes this a world that's lived in. You have these robotic things that have circuits that get sand in them, so of course you need to clean them off, you need to take care of them. If you buy a used one from a Jawa, you have to make sure it's in working order. It feels like a world. So Luke goes to dinner with his Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen, and he starts talking about the message 
message that he saw with Princess Leia, and she was referring to Obi-Wan Kenobi, and so he's wondering if maybe it's old Ben. And of course, Uncle Owen doesn't like this, but Uncle Owen says Obi-Wan died about the same time as his father, and Luke says, you knew my father? And he says, forget about it. Your concern is to prepare everything for the harvest, you know, because you got to harvest all that moisture. I still don't understand what moisture farming is, but it's definitely a job that these farmers do. Luke wants to go out and he wants to go to the academy and become a pilot, but they keep telling him, I need you for another harvest. I need you for another harvest. And of course, Luke hates this, doesn't want to stay for one more season. And this is something that I think really taps in to anybody who has been young, which of course is everybody. You get this feeling like the world is just passing you by. You want everything to happen right now. You're tired of being bored. You just think of this whole world that's out there that you're not seeing. And so Luke goes and stomps off and his aunt says to his uncle that he's got too much of his father in him. And Owen says, that's what I'm afraid of. And of course, we call that foreshadowing. (laughs) So Luke's off looking at the binary sunset. Just this amazing piece of music comes over, kicks at a rock, walks up on the hill, and he's just staring out. And to me, this is probably the most moving scene in all of the Star Wars movies. There's just something about it that really taps into being young and restless. And Luke is really an analog for when we were young. When you thought that everything was exciting out in the distance and you would just never get to see it. Luke essentially goes into the garage. He goes to check on the droids and he notices that R2-D2 is gone because he removed a restraining bolt which keeps them in the area that they want guess i don't know how restraining bolts work he's really upset because he knows he's going to get in trouble with his uncle so luke waits through the night we see uncle owen and his aunt one more time complaining about luke before ultimately their demise luke is going down with a speeder and then we see two sand people up on a ridge trying to take a shot at him they can't quite get a beat on him so they jump on a bantha which is this big kind of how can i put it muppet looking thing with giant curly horns and it walks over to a ridge. Luke finds R2 but Luke's wary because he notices some sand people. However, he doesn't notice the sand person right in front of him that's about ready to club him over the head. We hear the sand people screaming in triumph and then all of a sudden there's this giant noise from off in the distance. This is Obi-Wan Kenobi pretending to be a sand person. Obi-Wan comes up to Luke. He notices that Luke is passed out. He kind of feels his forehead and then he looks at the droid and gives the old well hello there come here little friend don't be afraid he sees that luke is passed out and then he sees the droids and he immediately shows that he's friendly he might be a chronic liar but whatever we'll discover that later on uh luke realizes that it's ben kenobi and ben says that they have to get going immediately they don't want to be back when the sand people come and he's asking luke what brings him out to this area and luke points to r2 and tells him that he's searching for his former master and that he claims he's the property of obi-wan kenobi and ben gives a very haunted look and he says obi-wan kenobi now that's a name i haven't heard in a long time a long time and then of course obi-wan instead of spinning out a yarn starts talking crap about his uncle (laughs) 
kind of rolls his eyes a little bit. I love that. That's another thing that makes it feel lived in is that you have these two older people and they clearly just don't like each other. And they're subtly throwing shade at each other. You know, the uncle's saying, oh, yeah, he's dead. I won't worry about him. He died about the time of his father. And then Obi-Wan is like just rolling his eyes when he's talking about the uncle. Luke finds C-3PO's hand. It's been ripped off. They get C-3PO up, and of course he starts whining that he's done for again. But Luke and Obi-Wan insist to C-3PO that he is not done for, and they start getting him on the move. And they go back to Obi-Wan's house, and Luke finds out that Obi-Wan fought with his father. Furthermore, he finds out that Obi-Wan fought in the Clone Wars, and Obi-Wan tells him he was a Jedi Knight, just like his father, and says that he was the best star pilot in the galaxy and a cunning warrior. And of course, this immediately gets Luke's attention because it, you really get the impression he knows absolutely nothing about his father. Nothing whatsoever. So think about this like an orphan who's not even allowed to talk to his uncle about his father. Didn't even know his uncle knew his father. And so of course he's glomming on to any piece of information that he can get. Obi-Wan produces a lightsaber and hands it to Luke. And Obi-Wan tells him it's the weapon of a Jedi Knight. It's not as clumsy or random as a blaster. Elegant weapon for a more civilized age and luke immediately starts waving it around as any of us would and i've got a picture if somebody handed me a lightsaber i'm probably having myself within five minutes i think at some point i'm doing the thing where i'm trying to jump over it or whatever and boom off goes the leg i would not make it very far anyway so luke asks how his father died and obi-wan tells him that he was a pupil of his and then he was killed by Darth Vader and that Darth Vader hunted down all the Jedi. Vader was seduced by the dark side of the force and Obi-Wan tells him what the force is. It's essentially it's an energy field that binds us, surrounds us, penetrates us, binds the galaxy together. So this is really interesting because essentially they're setting up a religion within the Star Wars universe and it's not like it's hard to explain. It's not like Buddhism. It's not like Christianity. It's not like Judaism. It's not like any of these isms he just completely made up this thing that maybe has some to do with karma but not really lucas was really swinging wild with a lot of these ideas and it's kind of amazing that they work so obi-wan finally gets r2d2 to play the message and it's princess leia and she says general kenobi you served my father in the clone wars now he begs you to help him in a struggle against the empire i regret that i'm unable to present my father's request to you but my ship has fallen under attack and i'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I place information vital to the survival of the rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And you see Luke watching the hologram just so lustfully. We'll come back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> and then Obi-Wan Kenobi immediately tells him that he has to learn the Force if he's going with him with to Alderaan. Luke says, Alderaan? I can't go to Alderaan. I gotta get it home. It's late. And he says, I need you, Luke. She needs your help. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. And of course... Luke just refuses. And he refuses because, honestly, this is what heroes do, according to Joseph Campbell. They always have a refusal of the call. This is a very standard thing. You see it over and over again. Think of, like, Rambo chopping wood, telling him, like, I'm a man of peace. You see it in so many things. It's a very basic trope that is so integral to storytelling. You have the hero longing for something more, and yet they're afraid to do the thing when it's in front of them. 
And usually some external event then has to push them into it. And this particular case, it's Obi-Wan begging him to learn the ways of the Force. Luke just keeps telling him, I can't, I can't. And of course, he's going to find that his aunt and uncle have been fried by stormtroopers. But before that happens, you got Grand Moff Tarkin talking about how the Senate has been dissolved and now the regional governors are going to take control over their territories and fear will keep the local systems in line. Also fear of their battle station, the Death Star, of course, and the other people in the room are concerned that the rebels will have the technical readout of the base so they'll be able to possibly destroy the Death Star. But Grand Moff Tarkin, not having it, doesn't really care. Another one of the officers is really proud of his technological terror as Vader tells him, a little too proud. And so Vader tells him not to underestimate the ways of the Force. And the guy immediately mouths back off to Vader and Vader just immediately starts to Force choke him. I just try and think about this in 1977 just watching this guy suddenly move his hand and then this guy start to choke maybe it seems like merlin or a wizard it's hard to imagine how people thought about it when that came out but it must have been thrilling just to watch and be like what the hell is going on in this a uh, grandma tarkin says that we're gonna crush the rebels in one fierce stroke and then you see luke and c-3po and obi-wan are looking around and noticing that the transport that the Jawas had got destroyed, but it's made to be covered up as if the Sand People did it. But Obi-Wan points out that the Sand People march single file, so you don't know how many of them are there. And he says, only Imperial Stormtroopers are so precise. Now, this is the last time a comment like that will be uttered unironically how they went from this to... <laughs> to stormtroopers being unable to hit a can in the middle of the desert when it's three feet in front of them. I'm not sure. It was a very quick slide. But in the first act of Star Wars, the stormtroopers are great. They're legendary. It's just from act two on that it becomes a problem. Anyway, Luke jumps in a speeder. He goes out and he sees that his aunt and uncle have been murdered by stormtroopers. And you see their scorched skeletons laying out in the dirt. And then we get a wipe across the screen and we see Vader coming in to talk with Princess Leia about the location of the hidden rebel base. She is going to give him nothing and so he brings in a torture droid which has a little needle sticking out and you can see her horror when she sees it and then immediately Vader takes a step forward and the door shuts and then we get another wipe back to Luke and a speeder coming back to Obi-Wan. They're burning the bodies of his aunt and uncle and this is where we see that external force that Joseph Campbell talks about, the refusal of the call. Something has to happen to push him into action. This is that event. Obi-Wan's telling him that there's nothing he could have done. If he had been there, he would have been killed too, and then the droids would be in the hands of the Empire. And Luke says, I want to come with you to Alderaan. There's nothing for me now. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. And so he is stepping into a brand new world. This is where we're going to cut off Act 1. Join us next week for Act 2, where we will not only talk about the middle act of this movie, but we will also do an intense focus on the influences that made Star Wars what it was. We talked a little bit about Joseph Campbell. We will talk some more about that, as well as some movies and TV shows and books that led Star Wars to be what it is. I'm Biggs, and may the Force be with you.
Dopa. Dobra Honka. Yeah, it's just those fumes. You'll get over it in a few hours. We have so many shows on the Not Safer Network. Download the entire first season of the show Not Afraid of the Star Wars fan base, but maybe it should be? Jedi Master's Degree. Two movies enter and only one movie leaves. Listen to Box Office Battle. Learn the history of television one show at a time with the podcast In Syndication. Music, anime, pop culture, movies, TV show, and the random babbling of two dudes who need to find something better to do. Check out A Feast of Geeks. The podcast that's perfectly described with its title, Movies with Wrestlers. And download the entire first season of the radio drama about a serial killer ripped from the pages of a hundred-year-old cookbook, A Thousand Ways to Please a Husband.